I'm assuming there's a kid's class and they're not running away because I got up here. That's just really disconcerting. I want to thank everybody for being here so consistently through the course of the week. Um, it has been a joy to be with your congregation and to get to know many of you for the first time. Um, I think I mentioned on Sunday, you know, almost a quarter of a century ago, I was in this neck of the woods going through preacher training down in Danville. And it's just, uh, it's really exciting to be this close to that. Um, and even though we may be heading home tonight, that doesn't mean that we're not going to see each other again. We live so close to each other. There's no reason that we shouldn't see each other more often than we have. So um, I look forward to continuing the friendships that we've made. Uh, I'm sorry that Anna can't be with me tonight with the other kids. Um, like John mentioned, Keenan is flying home. He's in the air right now. And uh, she's going to pick him up after Bible class in Louisville tonight. So we'll get to see him for the first time and almost uh, for Anna anyway since August. So this will be really good for us. Um, but as we wrap up tonight, we're actually going to move from one chapter of Hebrews to the other. We're going to go from chapter 11 to chapter 12 as we talk about the victory of faith or the victory of our faith. You know, as we've gone through chapter 11, we've talked about all of the things that these men and women of faith have endured, um, what by God's grace and strength and promises they were able to live through. And we mentioned on Sunday this long list at the end of chapter 11 as, as the writer was summarizing all these different circumstances that these people lived through. And let's, let's just quickly review that. Starting in verse 32 of 11, he says, What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so he goes through, and he's saying all of these people that were following God by faith in the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through the intertestamental period before Matthew, all of these people had been living lives of faith and looking forward to the promises of God, and God approved of their lives, but they never really fully received what they were looking forward to because they weren't going to receive that perfect thing separate from us, which means we're all going to be perfected together. They were waiting for the arrival of Christ. And we made the point in verse 38 that those people were better than the world. That through their faith in God, they became heirs of something better than they could ever find here. And I think that that's really encouraging. So what we're going to do as we talk about 
the victory of faith is we're going to move into chapter 12 and focus on the first four verses of chapter 12. And we're going to take eight or nine points from those verses. Starting in verse one, let's read the verses and then we'll go back and make our points. Therefore, there was a reason we read the end of chapter 11, because Paul is looking back at that concluding paragraph saying, look at what all these people went through and by faith they were commended, but they were still looking forward to something. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we're going to talk about the victory of faith, and we're going to make several points from that. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... I don't know how you imagined that concept the first time you heard it. You know, the first time that I heard Hebrews 12.1 and this great cloud of witnesses, I, I imagined a stadium with a track on the inside and someone running a race and all of these people in the stands spectating and witnessing this person trying to finish their race. And the reason I, I envisioned that was because I used to play soccer. I played about, oh, I could take care of that. There we go. I used to play soccer, and the high school track coach used to scout the soccer teams for those coming up into, so like soccer was the feeder program for the, the track program. And so one year he came by and talked to our coach and said, hey, would some of your faster soccer players like to come out and run some events just for fun, for a competition at the high school. And he picked me and a couple other guys, and we went. And my family came, some other friends from church came, and I knew nothing about track. I'd been playing soccer. So I was, I was the sweeper. I was all over the field. You know, I got to support the forwards. I got to jump back with the defenders and get grimy. You know, I, I was all over the place. And then they put me on this track with lines on either side and said, try to beat everybody else from going here to there. I didn't know the lines were there for a reason. So as I'm racing down this track and I see everybody up in the stands, I turn to wave and someone snapped a picture of me crowding out the guy next to me. You know, I eventually crossed. I think I won, but I was disqualified because I crossed over and just about took someone out. Now, that's what I pictured originally when the Hebrew writer said we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, but that's not the picture. It's not the picture of a bunch of spectators cheering you on from the sidelines. Because the crowd of witnesses were just listed at the end of chapter 12. They're not spectators. They're people who have run the race ahead of you. They're people that have already completed their race. They're the people telling you that faith is victorious. That a life of faith is worth it. 
And there are a couple of passages in the New Testament that I think point to this. In Acts chapter 22 and in verse 20, Paul is offering a prayer. And in his prayer, he says that the blood, he, the blood of Stephen, thy witness. Who's Stephen? Stephen is the, the believer back earlier in Acts that was martyred for his faith. And Paul was there holding the coats of the people throwing the rocks. And he's saying in his prayer that Stephen, through his life of faith and even his death of faith, had testified to the value of a life of faith. He said it was worth it. He said it was successful. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, in the, as the, the letters to the churches of Asia, Jesus mentions a man named Antipas, and Jesus says, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. Well, he's already dead. How can he be a witness? Because by the life of faith that he lived to the point of dying for his faith, he testified to the value and the success of a life of faith. And so when he says we are surrounded, we're surrounded by all these people who've gone ahead of us in life and they've done it and they're waiting for us to do it too, they're testifying to us. And just think about the, the image that he's giving here. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What makes up a cloud? We've been, we've been living in this place for about a week that's kind of up on a hill and in this series of hills and you wake up in the morning and there's fog and everything down lower on the hill and what makes up that fog what makes up a cloud all of these water molecules that are in the air and it takes so many of them to obscure your vision the hebrew writer is saying there are so many people that have lived successfully a life of faith and they're surrounding you, telling you it's worth it, and this is the way, and you can do it. So I think the point is this. The point is, listen to the testimony of former believers. You are not the first one to live a life of faith. The Bible is filled with them, men, women, children, elderly all of these people through all these different eras of history that lived a life of faith. And now it's your turn in your time in history to do it. And if you do it well, you'll become a part of that cloud testifying back to the people following you. So listen to the testimony of former believers that faith really is the victory. Now keep reading in the verse. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight. There was, a, there was a season in my life as an adult several years back where I made it my goal to run several half marathons in a year. And the reason I picked that goal, and some of you may or may not know, I don't know if I've mentioned it from the pulpit here. You know, you met my three younger kids and I told you that I have a college-age son coming home for fall break. But in between my oldest and my three youngest, we had two special needs boys who have passed on. The younger of those special needs boys, because of his cerebral palsy, couldn't run. He couldn't walk. He couldn't move. We had to carry him. He had a wheelchair. He lived until he was six. He couldn't run. 
And so we were always carrying him around. And the year after he passed away, I thought, you know, he could never run. I'm going to run. And so I started running. It was really good for my figure. <laughs> and I went to run three, mara- uh, three half marathons that year. The first one I was not ready for, and I just about died. About a mile and a half out of that 13, I was crawling. I hurt so bad when I finished that one. The second one got a little bit easier. My wife ran the third one with me. She did fantastic. And some people, when they train for those kinds of things, some of those people do something really crazy, and they add additional weights. (laughs) You'll see them sometimes. They'll get those armbands and those anklets and and they've got sand in them, and they try to weigh themselves down. Guess what? I never saw a single person wearing anything that silly on race day. No one's trying to make themselves heavier. All of their clothing is light. Their shoes are as light as they can make them. They usually don't carry water with them because they have water stations all up and down the route. They don't want all that extra weight because they can run faster farther without the extra weight. And the Hebrew writer is saying that in this race of faith, we need to look at our lives and ask, what would hold us back? What would hold us back? And at this point, he's not talking about sinful things. He will in just a second. At this point, he's talking about just anything in particular. Are there some things that are distracting you from running your race? And if so, what are they? And do you really need them? Not inherently sinful things, and they may be unique to each person. It makes me think about the rich young ruler. What the rich young ruler needed to hear was you value stuff too much. And so for you, sir, the thing that you need to do is to sell all that you have and come follow me. That's what he needed to hear. He valued his stuff too much. For him, it was a weight. And so Jesus was saying, get rid of that weight. What is it for you? Is it entertainment? Is it a sport? Is it something else that you've elevated or prioritized too much in your life that you need to knock back down the priority list? Don't let those things distract you from running your race. So the way I would say that is get rid of any habit or distraction that hinders your run. But then he moves on. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Sin does something even more than just distract us. Sin bogs us down. You know, I have a a family member by marriage that used to wrestle. He wrestled in high school. He wrestled in college. He had a scholarship with his college, and he was a college wrestler. Um, I grew up out in Oregon. So we had, like, everything you could possibly have. We had mountains. We had valleys. We had the coastline. We had the gorge. Like, we had all kinds of ecosystems in Oregon. And one of the things that one of his coaches at one point in his career used to do is he'd load up all the wrestlers, take them to the coast, and he would make these wrestlers, these burly guys, he would make them run sprints in the wet sand. And it was murder. Because you'd hit that wet sand, and if it was just wet enough, your foot would sink into it. And then as you went to pull it up, the water would make the sand grip your foot, and it was like a suction cup. And then the next one would hit, and you were fighting every step. You were not going to set any personal record running at the beach. But it was great training for your legs. It was great exercise. 
And I think that's the picture that the Hebrew writer has here when he says, look, we need to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. It's like mud and muck on our shoes. It holds us back and it slows us down. It's counterproductive, right? So if there's habitual sin in our life, you are not going to run the race that God wants you to run and you will not run as far as he wants you to go. You will not get there as quickly as you ought to get. You need to cut it out. Whatever that sin is, you need to cut it out. And it clings so closely. It's like a snare. It's going to trip you up before you take a couple of steps. So avoid anything that ensnares your feet and trips you up. Avoid those things. The next thing that he says is let us run with endurance. Let us run with endurance. And that's been one of the themes through 11 you know, we talked about the life of Abraham and Sarah after God called them out of Ur in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was 75 years old. Isaac doesn't show up until he's 100. And then he goes on to live after that. That's a long time to live for a promise. Especially if you count the first 75 years. But he endured. Did he endure perfectly? No. And I actually find that hopeful. God's not expecting you to do it perfectly. He's not going to judge you based on your worst day. But what he's looking for is your consistency and growth over time. He wants to look back on the totality of your life and from beginning to end say the whole thing, overall, this was faith. Right? So run with endurance. There's a passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that I think is helpful on this point. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse uh, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And there's some people that come to this passage and they get really nitty gritty. You know, what Paul or the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews is tribulation and trials. What Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10 is temptation. So, Jeremy, don't apply a temptation passage to a trial passage. But, Jeremy says, the immediate context is temptation. I'll grant you. So the immediate application is temptation. Did you know that the word for temptation in 1 Corinthians 10.13 is the same word used in other places for trial? So therefore, I can apply the passage to temptation or trial, and the principles stay the same. Which is, let's start working through the verse. No temptation has overtaken you. No trial has overtaken you that's not common to man. You're not alone. You are not the first one to go through this. You're not going to be the last one to go through this. You are not alone. Satan wants you to think that you're alone. You're not. Do not let Satan isolate you and make you feel like you're the only one in the history of mankind that is going through the temptation or the trial that you're going through because that is not true. The verse says it's not. And then he goes on to say that God is faithful. We made that point earlier this week. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And there's a specific one in verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
I think there's a caveat to that. And I've had some people push back really hard on that, where they've been like, look, what I'm going through, either the temptation or the trial is breaking me. And here's the caveat. God's not going to let you go through anything that will break you without his help. Without him, it's going to break you. Without God, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit working through his word, without those three at work in your life, the circumstances of your life will break you. I mean, the, the point of some of those things is to draw you to, drive you to God and drive you to Christ. Think about it like this, and I'm glad Sabina's here tonight, my almost 11-year-old daughter. Imagine you like to work out, you want to get strong, so you're going to go to the gym and you're going to hit the weights, and you're going to start bench pressing. So you get the bench and you get the, the bar and you start loading it up with weights on either side. And your thought is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out to failure. And the point is, I'm going to bench and bench and bench until my arms can't. And then the next time I come in, I'll bench and bench and bench until my arms can't. And I'll just keep getting stronger. Well, there's a problem with that. Because at some point, you won't be able to get the bar up. And it's going to drop and crush your chest. But the way that you get around that is you have a workout partner called a spotter who has his arms underneath the bar. And as you lower it, he's squatting down and keeping his arms underneath the bar so that when your muscles finally fail, he catches it and puts it back on the rack so it doesn't crush you. Now, as my daughter's father, as strong as that young lady is, do you think I'm going to let her try to bench press 300 pounds? No. It's foolish. Someday she'll get there, all right? But I know the capacity that my daughter has. Now, I might start her at a lot less and see how she does, but I'm going to keep my arms under there because without my help, I'm not going to let her go through something that she can't handle. God is not letting us encounter something that we can't handle with his help. But if we tell God, stop spotting me, I don't even believe that you're there, I don't want your help, I'm not going to listen to you, then it will crush you. But with his help, you will not be tempted or tried beyond your ability. And with the temptation or the trial, he will always provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we want to run with endurance. We want to run with endurance. But go back to the verse as we close out verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I would even personalize that a little bit more. And I would say run the race that's been set before you. You have a race. Your race is not my race. It's the same race of faith. We have the same Lord that we believe in and that we're following. We have the same God that we're listening to. We have the same inspired word that we're reading. But your life is not my life. There are things that you're going through in your life that are different from my life. I mean, I've already shared. I've buried two of my six kids before I was 40. I don't want anybody else to have to go through that, right? 
but you've gone through some things, I'm sure, in your life that I haven't gone through. And it's not fair. It's not fair for us to compare our races with each other. That's not the point. Your race is your race, and my race is my race. We can learn from each other's races, and we want to encourage each other through that race, weep with those who weep, and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. But if, if we start focusing on somebody else's race and go, man, their race is so much easier than mine, it's not fair. How do you know? You don't know everything they've gone through. You focus on your race. It's like when I was running that first, that first race and I was so busy I didn't pay attention that I was crowding into some other guy's lane. I needed to focus on my lane and let him focus on his lane. Right? And God and his sovereignty and goodness has given me the race he's given me. And he's given you the race that he's given you. Don't compare your race with someone else's. Keep going. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We want to focus on Jesus, the ultimate forerunner of faith. He is the ultimate pioneer of faith. When learning to drive out in Oregon, you know, back when I was a kid, I'm old enough that I can say that. Back when I was a kid, you turned 16 and got your license the same day and there were no restrictions. You could load that vehicle up with as many seatbelts as there were and go, right? There was no curfew. You could be out as late as you wanted as long as you met your parents' curfew, right? The cops would not pull you over at 11 o'clock at night and look at your license and have it be sideways and go, oh, like that, that just wasn't a thing. And during driving courses, they taught us, because I lived in central Oregon, a higher elevation up by Mount Hood, they taught us to drive in snow and ice because we had snow and ice. I took my driver's test in two inches of snow, which scared me to death. And I passed. Didn't think I was going to pass, but I passed. And they taught us that as you drive, you focus on where you want the vehicle to go. You don't focus on where you don't want the vehicle to go, especially if you lose traction with the road, you focus on where you want it to go. So you're going down the road and all of a sudden you start to lose traction and the car's going in a direction you don't want. You, you panic and your, your instincts are to be like, oh man, this is where I'm going. And you try it like you don't know what you're doing. And to pull out of it, you're supposed to look at where you want to go, slightly turn the wheel in the direction of the slide, catch control, and then bring it around where you're paying attention. But if you focus on where the vehicle's going, where it's not supposed to go, like you're just going to keep going that way. You know, that's us in life. If we're not focused on Jesus and on the destination of being with Jesus and pleasing Jesus, we get so distracted by all these other things out there, that's where we're going. That's what we focus on. That's what we live for. Instead, we focus on Jesus in the example that he set. He placed all of his faith in God and submitted his will to God's will, even regarding the crucifixion. Jesus kept his eyes focused on God. So focus on Christ, the ultimate forerunner of faith. That's not all Jesus did. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There was joy set before Jesus. 
And it's, it's a really interesting connection. There was joy set before Jesus regarding the cross. How is the cross a joyful thing to Jesus? I mean, during the Lord's Supper talks, especially when I was younger, the focus is always on the pain. It was such a physically painful thing, and we go into all this detail about what Roman crucifixion was, and there's a time and a place for understanding that. But I mean, that, that's the overwhelming focus the majority of the time during Lord's Supper talks, the pain of Jesus, the anguish, the agony, the word that actually means pain from the cross, from the cross. There's a time and a place for that. When was the last time you had someone talk during the Lord's Supper talk about the joy that was set before him in the crucifixion? What joy could there possibly be in the crucifixion? Let me, let me read a handful of passages from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He said that the night of his betrayal and arrest. What was his joy? John 16 20 through 24, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He's predicting the crucifixion and the sorrow and the grief they're going to feel, but at some point their sorrow is going to be transformed into joy. Why? John 17, 13, now I am coming to you, speaking to God, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves talking about the disciples. What's the joy? Before we answer that question, let me ask you a question about a different situation. For those ladies in the room that have given birth, how fun was that? I've been present for the birth of all of my children, including one of my adopted children, and that poor birth mother labored for a week in the hospital and it was not pleasant. It was painful. There's a reason a lot of women want to have drugs to numb the pain and the discomfort. Like, I think the movies hype it up to be more painful than it really is. But I'm not saying it's not painful. You know, I've never pushed a living person outside my body. But I'll tell you what, in every single instance, every single one, once the baby is born and everyone is confirmed to be okay, and that little baby is placed in the arms of its mother, nobody's thinking about the discomfort of the last week. Why? Because there's joy on the other side of it. There's joy. There's new life. And they're safe. The crucifixion was painful. It wasn't pleasant. It was intentionally torturous. Besides that, he had been flogged and beaten and mocked leading up to it. So he was even worse off than the other two guys, one on each side of him. But you think about what was completed through the crucifixion. And it was the fact that Jesus had been able to atone for sinful mankind and for those who came to be his disciples, they were restored in their relationship with God, and there was joy. There's joy in heaven over one who repents. 
And that's accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus. As Jesus was going through that moment, he was focused on the joy. There's going to be joy. There's going to be joy. Not right now, but on the other side, there's going to be joy. And there can't be any joy unless I do this. I have to do this. And he was focused on the joy. Focus on the joy that's set before you. You're going through something difficult, whether it's a trial or a temptation. It's not fun. It's unpleasant. Maybe it's intensifying. You don't know how long it's going to go. But listen, it's not going to last for forever. It's just not. It may feel like it right now, but it's not. And on the other side of your faithfulness to God, what all of that cloud of witnesses is saying is the joy of being with God is worth it. It's worth it. So endure. The joy is worth it. I'm going to give you another childhood example. Sarah said she's enjoyed getting these little sneak peeks into my family life. I, I hope you get the chance to meet my parents someday. They're fantastic people. I'm biased, but I think they're pretty great. My senior year of high school, I had always wanted a letterman's jacket. Did not want the letter. I did not want to clutter up my jacket with stuff. I just wanted the jacket. And so since I didn't want to letter... My parents made getting the jacket my letter. So they had, they had requirements for me to meet before I could get my jacket. And they were really sentimental. When I finally met the requirements for my jacket, they took me down. We were, again, we were living up in the mountains. They took me down to the valley, to Salem, Oregon, to the same sporting goods store that they got their jackets from when they were in high school. Took me into the same shop. It was still open, still doing business. We went in. We ordered it. It was a hunter green body with white leather sleeves. Fantastic. It's still in my closet. Okay. But it was going to take a couple of months to get. It was a custom jacket. No other schools in the area had it, so it was a custom jacket. We put the order in, and we drove back home over the mountain pass back to Central Oregon. The, the owner of the shop called us a couple of months later and said, the jacket is gonna, going to arrive on this date. And so dad made plans to drive me the three-hour trip down to the valley to pick up my jacket before the store closed that day. And so that day, my father and myself and my brother, just two years younger than me, piled into a banana yellow 1978 Chevy Love like it was a sweet ride with broken heaters to start driving in the winter over the mountain pass to get the jacket. And we got an hour outside of town, and the truck died. And it started snowing. And I just knew we were going back home. We're going home. Like, Dad's going to – we, we had no cell phones. No one had cell phones back then. I mean, cell phones were the size of two bricks put together. We couldn't afford that. So we waited on the side of the road until a state trooper came past, and he called a tow truck for us, and we sat in a freezing truck, 3D Hut men shivering together for warmth, and me griping. I'm not going to get my jacket. I'm never going to get my jacket. I'm going to have to wait two more weeks, however long it's going to take to fix this stupid truck. And my brother sitting next to me, will you tell him to be quiet? Finally, the tow truck shows up, and my dad looks at his watch. And he asks the guy to tow us two hours to Salem to get to the store before they close so we can get the jacket. Which tells you a whole lot more about my dad than it does me. Because my dad knew that there was this joyful thing that I had been working for and 
looking forward to. And if he could do it within his power, even though he had to pay a little bit more for the extra hour of towing, then he didn't want that joy to not be realized. It actually says something about me that I wasn't willing to endure a measly another week. But there is a joy set before us that's greater than any number of letterman's jackets. And it's an eternity with God. And you might be in the spot right now where you're stuck on the side of the road in a blizzard with no heat. And you just don't realize God's sending something to help you get to the other side. You just need to endure a few more minutes. Focus on the joy that God has set before you of an eternity with him. Focus on that joy. Keep looking at verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. There are some things that we are going to go through in our life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that the world is going to look at and say, that is so embarrassing. Like, I can't believe you live that way. I can't believe you say that. I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you don't do that. And they're going to think that we're less than somehow. I mean, people walked past Jesus on the cross and they were wagging their tongues at him. You guys follow him? I mean, look, at he's a mess. He's going to die. You guys, why are you following him? Jesus died a criminal's death. Paul emphasizes that over in Philippians chapter 2. It was a shameful death from the world's perspective. But he was innocent. He was innocent of all that. But he was willing to face what the world saw as shameful because it was necessary in his faithfulness to God. Are you willing to go through things that the world would say are embarrassing? Are you willing to be mocked and made fun of? Are you willing to be seen as odd or different? Because by the world's standards, we are. Disregard the difficult, shameful things you may endure. Disregard those things. Those things are temporary. They're fleeting. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. Okay? And then the Hebrew writer does something really interesting. He asks us to think in verse 3. He says, consider. Consider him. He's talking about Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he does something really interesting. Earlier in verse 1, he's saying, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You run your race. Do not compare your race to anyone else's. But now, in verses 3 and 4, he's saying, I want you to compare your race. I want you to compare your race to Christ's. And how does it match up? And it doesn't. It just doesn't. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Some of our versions say, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. I have never been flogged. I'm sure at some point my parents were tempted. I'm really grateful they didn't. But I haven't. I have not been flogged. 
I've never been beaten. I've never had thorns jammed down onto my skull. I have never been nailed to a hunk of wood and left to die. Like, that just has not happened. I've never been betrayed by 12 of my friends simultaneously. That hasn't happened. I've never been arrested and, you know, led through town. Like, that just hasn't happened. And that's the point. If I'm going to compare my race to somebody else's, compare it with Christ's. And when you do that, you realize, I really cannot complain. If Jesus can go through that for me, then I can go through what I'm going through for him. When you're running a marathon, whether it's a half marathon or a 5K, but especially something with some endurance in it, a half marathon, and you're out there and you're starting to get tired, especially the first one that you really haven't trained for, and you see someone 25 years, 30 years older than you, and their joints don't work the way that they used to work, and they're stiff, and they're shuffling, and they're going faster than you, I don't have anything to complain about. And that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to say. Look, Jesus had it way worse than any of us, and he finished. He finished. He's the perfect example. He's the perfecter of faith. So let that motivate you. Compare your race with Christ. Does it? No. So keep going. If he did it, you can do it. If he did that for you, you can do that for him. Think about some of these examples. In Luke chapter 16, verse 14, it says the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus. In Luke 23, 36, it says the soldiers mocked him. In Luke 23, 11, it says Herod and the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. In Luke 22, 63, they were holding Jesus in custody, mocking and beating him. In Luke 8, 53, they were laughing at Jesus. What I've gone through in my life doesn't compare to that. It just doesn't compare to that. Think about how the apostles were treated. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18, talking about Paul, what does this babbler have to say? I have never been in a public forum with someone saying, what does this nitwit, this insane guy have to say? I've never had that happen. It very well could in the near future, but I haven't had anyone say that yet. In Acts 17, 32, the same context, when they heard of him talking about the resurrection, they began to sneer. You know what a sneer is. It's when the lip kind of curls up and you're like, and your nose comes up. And it's a whole gesture. It's a whole uh, body language thing saying, you are a fool. They began to sneer at Paul when he talked about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 23, Paul told that church that the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly to Gentiles. You are going to try to uh, share your faith with some people, and they are going to make fun of you. It's just going to happen. In Acts chapter 26, verses 24 and 25, as Paul was talking about the resurrection and the gospel, they just flat out said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. Some of your Bible versions will say, you are crazy. As rough as that was, did it still compare to Christ's? The way Paul worded it in some of his epistles is that he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's suffering. 
and he still hadn't done it. And you think about everything that Paul suffered, and he's like, I still haven't suffered as much as Christ. You could go through his list of suffering in 2 Corinthians. He's been shipwrecked, left out. He's been poisoned. He's been left for dead. He's been stoned, all these things. And he's like, I still haven't suffered as much as Jesus. There's more that we can do for him. Someone said, when people become weary on the way, when they grow faint in heart because there seems to be no end to the trials they have to endure, let those people consider him. He suffered uncomplainingly the hostility and the malevolence of sinful people. The recipients of Hebrews had not been called upon to endure anything like that yet, and we haven't either. Look, we're... We live in a country, supposedly, that still has free speech. I wonder how free it is, but it's freer than what Jesus had. And it's freer than what some Christians have in other countries. Is it what it was 5, 10, 15? No, it's not. But it's still better by comparison than in other places. Let's not complain about what we do have and take advantage of it. So as you look at that list and talk about the victory of faith, we are surrounded by all of these preserved examples of people who have run this race and done it well. Imperfectly, but they've done it well. And it can be done, and it's worth being done. So let's lay aside everything that will slow us down, the stuff that will get in our way, run with endurance, the race that's set before each one of us. Focus on Christ, focus on the joy, disregard the way some people may look at it. And if we're struggling and running low, compare it with Christ. Let me just end with a really encouraging story someone shared with me i'll come back i think i just walked off the stage i preached in birmingham for about five years and there there were some wonderful people that i was blessed to meet there were some that i just didn't have the opportunity to meet yet and there was an evangelist that i did not have the joy of meeting he passed away before i moved down there but everyone knew him and he was a runner he liked to run and at one point earlier in his adult life, he had convinced a friend of his to run a race. I think it was a half marathon. And everybody, all of his friends were like, you're crazy. I can't believe you let David talk you into running that race. You're just crazy. Just like David, you're crazy. And that guy trained and he trained and he trained. And then he went to run the race. And on the day of his race, this preacher named David showed up. And he showed up to encourage his friend. And so he had not registered for this race. And so what he did is he was at the starting line and, you know, was cheering for his friend as he started his race. And then several stops along the way, he would pop around to the line, wait for his buddy and encourage his buddy. And he got about two thirds, maybe three quarters of the way through the race and was waiting and waiting and waiting for his buddy. And his buddy wasn't coming. Finally, he showed up and his buddy was hurting. I mean, just like me with my first one, he wasn't really ready for it. And his body, like, he was shot. I don't know if he was hydrating well. He wasn't sure he was going to be able to finish the race. And this preacher named David, because he was wearing the blue jeans of the South in his khakis, jumped the line and jumped on the road and ran with his buddy until he finished the race. The thing with the race of the Christian faith is we're not trying to beat each other. We're trying to help everybody finish. We all win. There's no first, second, and third. 
It's did you cross the line? And you're trying to help as many people cross the line as possible. I wish I had had the opportunity to meet David. But I share this story every time I preach this sermon. Because David has received his reward. And he is now in that great cloud of witnesses saying that that race of faith is worth it. And I want to meet him on the other side. Thank you for this week. And I hope you believe like I do that the race of faith is worth it and that the victory is worth it. And I hope you're motivated to help each other cross. If there's someone who's struggling, maybe somebody who hasn't even started their race, they haven't become a Christian yet. It starts with that. If you need to become a Christian, professing your faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God who died for your sins and you're willing to die with him in baptism and have his atoning blood applied to you so that you can rise to walk a new life spiritually, reunited with God, you can do that tonight. And if you're already a Christian that needs to be encouraged, maybe you're just getting tired and you need encouragement, we'll jump the line and get on the racetrack with you and help you. And there are going to be times where you're going to have to jump the line and come help me. We're just going to take turns with each other until we finish. If there's anyone that needs that encouragement, we don't know that unless you share that with us. Come to the front and let us know how we can help while we stand and while we sing.